They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Hey, welcome back to the Magellans at the Movies podcast. Even though we don't have a the, we should have, we should change the name to the the Magellans at the Movies. The Magellans at the Movies. I don't like the double the the Magellans at the Movies. I just like Magellans at the Movies. It's kind of casual. It's like, oh, where are the Magellans? Oh, they're at the movies. <laughs> the ma- we're not. But the. It, does, it does put me in mind of. In the the social network, when Justin Timberlake says, "Drop the the," just call it Facebook. Just Facebook, the Facebook. Yeah, adding a the feels really pretentious. We're not the Magellans. We're just Magellans. True. There's so many of us. We're just two of <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, or uh, could could it be that without the the implying a specific Magellans? We are inadvertently speaking for all Magellans, acting as if all Magellans are at the movies. I mean, all the important movie reviewing Magellans are currently are at the movies, is what I'll say. Hmm. (laughs) Something to think about. It doesn't really matter, though. Uh, We're back after a Nathan-induced sabbatical. Nathan was very irresponsible in his planning and his timing, and because of his poor planning, we've had to delay this recording severely. This is the the worst delay that we've ever had. People have been very upset, sending in angry letters. I've directed them all to Nathan. I'm sure he he's very contrite. But we're back. So if you cast your mind back to the most recent episode, we started playing along with the Rotten Tomatoes Best Directors of the Last 25 Years tourney going through the matchups and giving our picks and generally being displeased with the results. Uh, Or actually, I think we were usually (laughs) on the right side. But uh, yeah, we... The current round is round five, but... So we didn't get to round four, but we're going to go back and do round four as if it's still happening and then do round five when we next record. Um, So let's dive into it. Uh, first up, we've got Denis Villeneuve, or Villeneuve, it's it's impossible to say, versus Bong Joon-ho. Villeneuve, of course, known for Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and Dune. Uh, Bong Joon-ho for Memories of Murder, The Host, and Parasite, and Mother. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with Denis without much hesitation. I like Bong Joon-ho. Uh, I really like Snowpiercer. I really like... Parasite. Um, I don't really like Memories of Murder because that movie's tone is all over the place. It's got the best jump kick in movie history, which, I mean, that bumps it up a full letter grade. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not enough to overcome Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, uh, Prisoners. Those are three masterpieces right there. And we've also got really good movies like Dune and Incendies. So, yeah. And then we just won't talk about Enemy. <laughs> uh, we did talk about Enemy in our uh, least favorite movies of all time. So if you want to check out that episode, feel free to. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you, Elliot. I really like Bong Joon-ho. I still need to see Mother. So that could theoretically bump him up above Denis, but I think especially in recent in recent years, Denis has been on a hot streak. I don't like Dune as much as other people, but Blade Runner, Arrival, Prisoners, I mean, this is a crazy, that's a crazy run for a director to go on. So I'm going to have to agree with, with your assessment, Elliot. Well, that's great. Um, Denis had at the 
time voting was over 70% of the votes to Jeez. Bong Joon-ho's 30. So that's a pretty good win for Denis. Next up, we have Damien Chazelle versus Taika Waititi. Damien Chazelle for Whiplash, La La Land, First Man in Babylon. Waititi for What We Do in the Shadows, Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok, and Jojo Rabbit. So it might surprise you to know, Nathan, that this is actually pretty hard for me because I like Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit, but I love Whiplash and I like La La Land. So it's hard for me to sort of quantify that to a point where I can measure them against each other. Like, what is... Is two likes and one love and one <laughs> like greater than um, – which one wins out in that scenario? Because Damien Chazelle also – it's one love, one like, and one dislike. So how does it all play out? Because First Man is – it's not very good. Um, it's not very good. False. True. False. I'm true, that is. Um, I think – and then, I mean, Babylon is reportedly pretty bad, but all see, but also Thor Ragnarok is reportedly pretty bad. You've seen Thor Ragnarok, Elliot, or not Thor? Sorry, Thor: Love and Thunder. Yeah. Gosh, I think that I would have to go with Damien Chazelle because I feel like he has, if nothing else, he's more likely to beat the curve that he's currently on and make something good. Because I think that the problem with Taika Waititi is that he has a very specific style that he does not really stray from. So the quality of his movies is in many ways, is in many ways dictated by how well his style gels with the movie that he's making, with the story that he's choosing to tell. Whereas Damien Chazelle, one of the things that I've talked about is that none of his movies look like, in terms of the cinematography or the color palette or the lighting or anything like that, none of them look like a Damien Chazelle movie. They all have very distinctive styles. So he's much more of a chameleon when it comes to the style and the form of the movies that he chooses to make. So I think that he's more likely to pull something out than than Taika would be. Um, I, that probably doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense in my head, and that's what matters. Yeah, I'm going to go with Damien as well here. I like him a lot more than you, I think. But I, am, I do really like Taika Waititi. I'm very excited for, I don't know if you've seen the trailer yet, but his next movie, uh, Next Goal Wins, looks very good. Michael Fassbender is in it. It looks really funny. It looks right up Taika's alley. But he did also direct both of those Thor movies, and I don't really like either of them. I didn't even really like Ragnarok very much, so I'm going to have to, I'll go with Damien as well. Well, that's good. He's got 59% of the vote. Taika's 41, so easy dub for Damien. Next, we have Alex Garland versus Jordan Peele. Alex Garland, known for Ex Machina, Annihilation, and Men, because that's the only things he's done. Jordan Peele, known for Get Out, Us, and Nope, because that's the only things he's done. Uh, Gosh, I guess I would go with Jordan Peele, because... Annihilation is not very good, and Men is supposedly, like, really not very good. I really like Ex Machina, but I don't know. I really like Get Out. Don't like Us very much. Nope has... It's it's got... It's complicated, but it's... There's stuff to like there, probably more so than Annihilation, which is just really annoying, so yeah, I think I think I would have to go with Jordan Peele. Although I I don't think that I wouldn't have picked either of these directors for the for round five or round four. I just want that on the record. Yeah, I agree. I'm in the same exact boat. I I would pick Jordan Peele, but the fact that we have two, and I'm pretty sure because I've already seen the thingy, I'm pretty sure Jordan ends up winning this one. So. Oh. 
the fact that we end up with a guy who's only directed three movies in the four best directors to appear in the last 25 years, I, th- I, I feel like we need like a minimum of five movies before we can really start to qualitatively say this director has like a legacy or has a meaningful body of work that we can start discussing their, you know, what they mean to movies. But, well, you know, that's, that's, I guess that's kind of the thing with tournaments that it, it's very much the luck of the draw in terms of who you get put up against. Cause would Jordan Peele, if Jordan Peele had been up against, I don't know, Bong Joon-ho in an earlier round, I think he probably would have been taken out, but that's just the way the dice rolled. Uh, you are correct. Jordan Peele did win this quite safely, 71% to 29%. So finally, we have Sam Mendez versus Chris Nolan. Sammy M, known for American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Skyfall in 1917. Chrissy N, known for Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Oppenheimer. Um, so the answer is Christopher Nolan. End of discussion. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I and I know there's some Nolan haters out there, and we've discussed Nolan before. We've done one of his, just one of his, well, two. We've done Oppenheimer and The Dark Knight, but I I think he is very deserving of. I feel like in terms of the 21st century, it's him. And David Fincher are the two that I really feel like have been the most meaningful and, you know, kind of genre shifting and just in terms of changing the shape of cinema. I see those two. And I see Nolan as kind of the, I mean, he he was doing superhero movies and everyone's doing superhero movies. He's doing these funky you know, sci-fi things and other people do. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a fanboy. I love Nolan. I'm assuming he's going to win this th- thing by a mile in the end. But Nolan, you know, he's great. He's so good. He gets more hate than I think he deserves. I like how you say genre as if you're referring to some guy named John Ra. How am I supposed to pronounce it? Genre. I'm not French. It's genre. Good Lord. <laughs> Don't make me bring up the whole Macron thing. Emmanuel Macron? <laughs> I actually anyway. don't remember ever. Whatever. Anyway, Christopher Nolan took this. I mean, it's 92% to 8% so that it's an absolute landslide. I think that I don't think Christopher Nolan in any of these matchups has scored under 90%. Um so yeah. It looks like for the next round uh Christopher Nolan is either going to win against Denis or Damian. Yeah, well I don't know if you noticed and you know once we finish this we can get into talking about the actual movie but Rotten Tomatoes also did like a top yep. Yep. 25 movies of the last 25 years. And the top three are Christopher Nolan. It was like voted for by fans. And I'm pretty sure it's, is it it's, Dark Knight Interstellar Inception? It's Dark Knight Inception Interstellar. Good grief. Look, I, I love those movies, but I mean, that is kind of embarrassing that it's three Nolans at the top. I mean, you can throw in... So many other things, <laughs> I think, deserve to be uh, in the top 10 well, besides, you know. Uh, obviously, I see this. Is, I was actually going to ask you about this to like, what would you say is the, the best movie of the last 25 years? But then I realized our answers are already documented. You would say La yeah. La Land. I would say No Country for Old Men. So... Yeah, I guess if I had to choose a movie that I think is indicative of, like, movies in the last 25 years, I'd probably choose Inception then. But that's just because I think Inception is very informed by a lot of the ideas of the 21st century. But I think, I mean, No Country for Old Men, I think, is also kind of informed by that. So that's an okay pick, Elliot. (laughs) 
Well, anyway, I think that when they did the Critics' Choice one, Mad Max Fury Road was number one. Which that is, makes sense. That's, that's, a thing. that's a great movie. It's a good movie, yeah. Well, anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, we are now going to downshift into the main topic of this episode, which is Lay Batman. Um, it's a 20... Oh, gosh. What is it? No. I forgot. 2022. Two years ago. 2022 movie. So it actually came out last year, Nathan. Um, oh, whoops. My bad. Directed by Matthew Reeves, who we'll talk about him, I'm sure, at some point in this episode. But in my opinion, is one of the most exciting new directors, uh, up-and-coming directors working today. What? This, well, I would just remember when we started talking about the Rotten Tomatoes directors thing, I had a thought. Why wasn't, was Matthew Reeves ever on the list? Because surely he didn't have a movie come out before 1999, right? He was not on the list. Dude, what the heck? That's bonkers. They had Alex Garland, but not Matthew Reeves? I would, I would definitely take... Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War of the Planet of the Apes, and the Batman over Annihilation, Ex Machina, and Men. Yeah, no kidding. But anyway, the Batman, it's the first new Batman movie, uh, or mainstream Batman movie, since, well, I guess sort of since Batman v Superman. It's the first, like, Batman solo movie since Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy ended. There was a lot of discourse surrounding it because of course batman is one of the most popular characters in media uh one of the most recognizable with one of the most recognizable and beloved rogues galleries there it had a very troubled development uh cycle lots of ben affleck was initially supposed to direct it and star in it he stepped away then matt reeves came in robert pattinson was cast then COVID happened. There was it, it, it was all going down. Uh, but the movie ended up doing very well for itself. It got very strong reviews. It absolutely raked in cash. I think it made it grossed somewhere in the realm of like six hundred million dollars or something like that. Uh, I I saw this movie in theaters three times. Not because I was head over heels for it or anything, but because it just sort of. I saw it with you, Nathan, and uh, some other members of our family. And then Lydia wanted to see it, so I went to see it with her. And then I went to see it with a friend of mine who really likes DC movies. So, yeah. The movie follows Batman, the titular Batman, um, hunting down a serial killer called the Riddler, who is killing people with really devices. Um <laughs> And uh, leaving riddles. If you know the Riddler, you pretty much know the score here. Um, yeah, there's not a. It's not. It doesn't have a really complicated plot. But Catwoman is in it. She's doing things. It's got a very star-studded cast. I'm I'm rambling now. So that that's the background information of the movie. Nathan, let's talk about it. What do you think of this movie? What are your initial thoughts? What's your overview of the Batman? Give it give it to us straight. Don't sugarcoat it. I never do. I'm always very honest on this podcast, unless I'm paid to lie, in which case I will lie for money. But <laughs> since the check Robert P. sent me hasn't <laughs> hasn't gone through yet, um, I really liked this movie. I've only seen it twice. I've watched it for the podcast, and then I watched it in theaters with you. But I had not rewatched it since that, you know, that moment a year ago when I watched it I I really liked this movie and I think I liked it a bit more on rewatch I think this is just such a phenomenally well-realized world for Batman like you already mentioned Batman has a very famous rogues gallery but beyond that Batman just has a very famous like cast of characters and cast of locations and things and ideas that he comes into 
right any place with. He, you've got Gotham, you've got Arkham City, you have Commissioner Gordon, you have Alfred, you have the Waynes, you have the Lore, you have uh, right it's, all of it's Arkham Asylum. Arkham City is a different thing. Oh my bad. <laughs> well, Arkham City, great video game anyway. But he brings in all of this other stuff. So whenever you make, I remember reading stuff about this movie when it was in production. It was, and it was just every tiny thing. I think there was a huge deal made of the first time that they revealed the new Batman suit, and the first time they revealed the new Batmobile. Like every every new piece of the Batman mythos is a big deal to see how they will adapt it. And I think this one does such a phenomenal, phenomenal job of bringing a very cohesive, interesting world that Gotham looks a very particular way. It's much more New York City than Nolan's Gotham, which was kind of Chicago, partially because they used the Chicago skyline, but also because just the vibe of the city was kind of a Chicago vibe. Whereas this one, I think, has more of a New York sort of vibe to it beyond the fact that they have a giant stadium called the garden and that he drives through what appears to be a Times square esque location. But I just think the biggest strength of this movie is the world that's created the characters in it. It's so technologically well done. It has such a great understanding of Batman. I'm very excited to get, you know, you're a bit more of a Batman expert than I am. I'm very excited to hear your opinion on this you know, version of Batman. But I think just at the outset, I can say this is a good movie. Very, very fun. Great Batman flick. Huh. That's interesting. I agree with pretty much everything that you've said. I like this movie a lot. I, uh, to be honest, I don't think that I, like I didn't, my enjoyment of this movie wasn't eroded um, on, on this viewing. I don't think that, I think that there were some, I was more alive to some of its flaws this time around than I have been recently, particularly in the pacing department. I think that that's probably going to be the centerpiece of our criticisms when we eventually get to that, is that this movie is paced pretty slowly. Um, and I love a slow-burning movie as much as the next guy. I, actually, I probably like the slow burning movie a great deal more than the next guy. Uh, Nathan, I'm sure that's true of you as well. Or at least we're more open to slowness than the average audience. Cause we're just, we're just really smart and sophisticated like that. But yeah, there were, there were a lot, there were, j there were a lot of moments where I was like, you could trim like three seconds off of this. And the, the ag in the aggregate, you could probably get like five minutes off from just, just having people speak with a little more purpose and having people walk <laughs> a little more hastily and just having shots that end quicker. But that shouldn't detract from what is a really good movie. Uh, a lot of people, including the friend that I saw this movie with, Cody, said ended up saying that it was their favorite Batman movie. I don't think so. I think that The Dark Knight is, is pretty well entrenched in the top spot. But I think that this would probably be a good second pick, a strong, a strong silver medal for the Batman. The technical aspects of this movie are immaculate. The cinematography is fantastic. Uh, don't we have, oh gosh, isn't it Greg Fraser behind the camera? Greg Fraser, great cinematographer. He's up there with your Hoyt Van Hoytemas and your Roger Deakinses. The music, oh man, the music in this movie is really good. Michael Giacchino is a great composer. I always love looking through his discography because he he names his songs, uh, he includes a pun in all of the names of his songs. And it's just really funny. It's just really fun to see what he does. So here's a weird recommendation for you. Go look at the soundtrack for this movie and just enjoy the pun names for all the songs. I thought that Robert Pattinson did a really good job, really strong Batman. Um, he definitely is a more uh, unhinged kind of Batman. He's uh, in the balance between Bruce Wayne and Batman in this movie is well in favor of Batman. Bruce Wayne only has like 
five or six scenes. Um, and it's clear that he is more comfortable as Batman than he is as Bruce. And that's part of the, his character arc is uh, being in that place, which I think is good. I love Andy Serkis. He's such a great actor. And I think that he brings the right mixture of warmth and uh, fatherly sternness to Alfred. Uh, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright is a great actor. Love him in Westworld. I love him as Felix in the new Bond movies. And he's great as Commissioner Gordon. Paul Dano is a perfect pick for Riddler. <laughs> I like Zoe Kravitz for Catwoman. I, I, I love all the characters and the performances in this movie. They're all so great. The action, there's not a lot of it, but Matt Reeves does a great job of staging and filming action without many unnecessary cuts. Just clean, well-choreographed fisticuffs. Great stuff there. Uh, yeah, this is a, altogether a really good movie that's just that's just got some pacing issues and some unrealized potential in terms of themes and character development that we'll get into later that are keeping it back from being like truly one of the all-time comic book movie greats, at least for me. But then again, I do... I don't really... I can't really even think of any comic book movie greats aside from The Dark Knight. So maybe my standards are just too high. <laughs> well, I I want to start this discussion. Oh, with Spider-Man. Batman. Spider-Man. That's one of the all-time comic movie greats. Sorry. I thought you were answering. I, I was like, I want to start my discussion with, and you were saying, Spider-Man. I want to start talking about Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to talk, I want to talk about Batman. There was some discussion following the release of this movie that some people were upset that they felt the movie was very critical towards Batman. And I thought it was interesting and also showed kind of an embarrassing lack of comic knowledge, which I'm about to flex here for no good reason, because this is literally the only Batman comic I read. But I felt like this was a Batman movie that, knew it existed post The Dark Knight Returns, which is a comic book by Alan Moore, right? No, it's... Frank Miller. Frank Miller, it's the other guy. I couldn't remember which nutty <laughs> dude wrote this. It's a comic book by Frank Miller, came out, I believe, in the 90s. And it's very critical towards the idea of Batman, that it's an older Batman, and he's clearly kind of coming unhinged and coming apart at the seams in this book. But I felt like this movie kind of had an understanding that Batman fundamentally as a character is kind of nutty and is not necessarily going about things in the best way possible. That through the course of this movie, Robert Pattinson's Batman kind of comes to this place of like, I can't just beat up poor people in train stations and think that Gotham is going to start getting better. I need to start like doing more proactive things, which doesn't take any shape in this movie. He just says he's going to be a symbol for hope. And then we just kind of trust that that's what he's about to go do. We don't see any actual evidence of this, but I just wondered what your t I I think this version of Batman is really interesting because he does start in such a dark, gritty, mean spirited sort of place. I mean, he's got an almost Rorschach esque narration and like journaling sort of thing. Rorschach being another kind of pseudo Batman critique from the comic book Watchmen. But I just think it's interesting that this movie takes place in a with an awareness of the criticisms of Batman and kind of tries to do a bit of a, you know, reworking of the character to, um, I guess, debuff or de whatever the word is, these sort of criticisms. Do you see any of that or do you feel like the movie does anything of that sort of thing? Um. I I don't know. That was a little confusing and hard to follow. And I was a little bit I was a little bit distracted by loud voices coming from upstairs. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people get people are very protective of their favorite characters. Usually, I find 
to the detriment of innovation. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that just doing something weird and different with the character is automatically good because obviously that's not the case. But I do think that, I do think that there is a danger of stagnation when all of the boundaries of a character are so zealously guarded. I don't, I don't fall into that camp myself. I, I think Batman is a great character, but I, I do like seeing the different directions that different storytellers have taken him in. I think that, I think that you're probably right that it is, well, I don't think it's critical of Batman. I think it's just like looking at him from a different perspective from a more, Mm. not necessarily realistic, but a more holistic perspective of like, okay, what does Batman actually accomplish aside from putting people in the ward uh, or in the hospital? And it is, that is the whole thing about Batman is that he doesn't, I mean, his rogues gallery is always escaping. He's not, he's not really like making much progress. And there's, that's sort of like a tension that exists that I've noticed in, I do have a, like a very modest collection of Batman comics in my desk over here. It's been a while since I've read any of them, but if I cast my mind back if I if we start the ripple effects and I have a flashback to young me reading them, I can recall a tension that existed in the heart of a lot of these stories of like, these are people Batman's been fighting for years and years and years, and they're they just keep on coming back. But that's that also plays into one of the more interesting things of Batman's no-kill rule, which I think having such a rigid clear line in the sand i think that that makes for a lot of interesting conversations and we talked a lot about this in when we talked about the dark knight and about how uh his rule is sort of like a moral bulwark against becoming just sort of a bat a murderer who only murders quote-unquote bad people or evil people i mean obviously joker and those folks are evil but yeah this is uh this is very rambly i'm not 100 sure where i'm going with this i think that this i this movie is taking a more holistic view of batman and what he actually represents and i do like his character arc um this kind of gets in kind of touches on what i said would be was one of the things that's holding this movie back a little bit and that's a bit of lost potential because I would have liked the, the you're right they're definitely going for Batman becoming less um vengeful obviously um that's supposed to be his arc here and I would have liked them to go to do to be a little bit more what's the word forthright that's not a that's not a great word but a little bit more putting that front and center by maybe making him more vicious and brutal in the earlier parts of this movie and part of the problem is that he just doesn't fight a lot of people so there's not a lot of chances to show that but if he was shown to be like just really unhinged and brutal in his fighting style and how he takes people down and that i think that would ground his character arc a little bit more and make the payoff of him uh deciding to do some to be more self-sacrificing and more being more like kind of a very strangely dressed first responder helping people and helping (laughs) paramedics and stuff i think that that would have made the payoff that payoff uh hit a little bit harder yeah well and i think there's a lot of places where you can see you know, I'm just kind of coming to this realization as we're talking that you can kind of see an arc that the main thrust of Batman should not be he's here for like vengeance, but that he's here to protect the people who can't protect themselves. I love all the shots of Batman or Bruce just looking at Mayor, uh, is it Maroney's son? Mitchell. Mitchell. At Mayor Mitchell's son. And there's just, and it's really a testament to Robert Pattinson's acting, as well as just, you know, the history of the character Batman. But there's just such this idea of 
every time he looks at the kid, he's right back in that moment where he was the orphan. He lost his father and his mother. And there's a great Batman book that I read that described Batman's kind of his guiding principle was that no one would ever have to feel like he did the night his parents died because Batman would always be there to like save them from having to feel that. And so I, I like seeing in this movie, this transition from, you know, in his first appearance, they ask, who are you? I'm vengeance. He's here to enact justice, very violent justice upon the people who have done something wrong. And it's this transition to the final big moment of the movie is like you said, he's a strangely dressed first responder, but it's a change from I'm here to beat up the people who deserve to be beat up to I'm here to save the people who need to be saved. That it's just a changing in direction. But I don't think that's really established a ton over the course of a three hour long movie. I mean, there's the one scene where the mayor elect comes and talks to Bruce at the funeral and is like, hey, like you should be doing charity work and you should be doing this. But that's really the only scene where it's like a very purposeful, right? Batman should be doing more than just fighting crime in order to make Gotham better. Yeah. And along those same lines, you have you do have that one bit in the very beginning when he beats up the people in the train station and the person he's there to save is scared of him and says like please don't hurt me and i think that's really good i just wanted a little bit more of that so i I think that the character arc is and the development of that is just a little bit thin and like you said in a three-hour movie that becomes less i don't know not less forgivable but less like it's harder to wave that away where you can't say like, oh, well, there's time constraints, blah, 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 blah. It's more like, okay, you really could have, if you had to have a three-hour movie, you could have replaced some of this stuff with <laughs> these more character-focused moments. Um, I, it's still good. Like, it's still a good, satisfying character arc. It just could have been a lot better. And the fact that there's so much more time spent on other stuff really brings that into the light. But yeah, so that's Batman. I don't have anything else to say on him. Uh, well, not at the moment, at least. But I do want to now talk about the... Oh, there is actually one other thing I wanted to say. And that's that Batman becoming sort of a community figure is very much a part of his mythos and his canon. Is that he's he's a lot like Spider-Man in that he becomes sort of this, like there are still people who dislike him in law enforcement. um, And I don't know, maybe in the media, I don't know. He doesn't really have a J Jonah Jameson character, but (laughs) he becomes a sort of public hero. Um, he, He becomes very well liked and respected by his community. And so I liked that they, they got him to that point by, again, being a first responder, saving lives, um, <laughs> cutting dangerous electrical equipment, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, let's talk about all the, other all the stuff you want to see Batman do. Yes, I, I, I love watching Batman do electrical work. That's my favorite thing. Um, <laughs> we're being facetious. But yeah, let's talk about the other characters, because like you said, Batman is as much his supporting cast and his setting as he is the character of Batman. Like Commissioner Gordon, the spotlight, the bat signal, the Batmobile, Catwoman, Alfred, his rogues gallery, they're all a part of his character. And I think that the supporting cast is one of my favorite parts of this movie because I think that they are all so pitch perfect. I want to specifically say... I love Penguin in this movie. Like, (laughs) he is such a sleazy, slimy, self-aggrandizing nut job. And it's so perfect. Like, gosh, Penguin has never been one of my favorite Batman villains. But he is so good in this movie. Colin Farrell 
does such a great job. Like he absolutely, he loses himself in this role. Like he is not phoning it in whatsoever. He's giving it 110%. And yeah, just that sneering smile of his is, it's pitch perfect for Penguin. And I, I love how he's, he he's charismatic and charming, but also volcanically intemperate. And I love when he's when Batman is first interrogating him, and he's like he's making all these stupid jokes, and he's like, uh, Batman is like, I want to I want to know what he has to, what this woman has to do with murder, and he says, what murder? And he's like, the mayor's murder, and Penguin's like, oh yeah, that is the mayor, and he's so obviously lying and. Gosh, it's so perfect. I love Penguin in this. Uh, I I wish he was in it more. I and if it weren't for how much I love Penguin in this, I probably would have said that the show, the TV show that they're making about him, the spin-off show that they're making about him for HBO, I probably would have said that's stupid, but after this Penguin, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. It might <laughs> that might be something. But uh yeah, there we'll talk about the other characters, but that's the first one that I want to really say I love Penguin and I love Colin Farrell in this. Yeah, I mean, I would second that. I love the makeup and, like, special effects that go into Colin Farrell as well. When they first unveiled pictures of it, everyone was like, that's Colin Farrell? That doesn't look like him at all. Um, I guess if I had to choose a person other than the Penguin to highlight as someone I really love, I love Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon is always one of my favorite parts of the Batman mythos, just because I think he and Batman have a really good rapport and it's always fun to see them kind of play off of each other. And we get a ton of that in this movie of them working together. I love when they enter, I think it's the orphanage and Gordon takes on his gun and Batman's like, no guns. Yeah, that's your rule, dude, not mine. <laughs> and I just, I love to see them working together. I think, Jeffrey Wright in a movie with so many like incredibly self-serious emo sort of characters. I think Jeffrey Wright has a lot of good kind of love, just like the penguin. There's a lot of kind of humor and levity to him as well as just having a guy there to react like a human being. When you see some disgusting rat face chewing trap and Batman's like, you know, I see stuff like this for breakfast. And Commissioner Gordon's like, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? Like, this guy's nuts. It's just nice to have someone like that there. But yeah, I love all the supporting cast, but I guess if I had to highlight a person and I can't highlight Penguin because Elliot stole him, I'd do Commissioner Gordon. I agree. Uh, like I already said, Jeffrey Wright is a great actor. He's been in a lot of supporting stuff, but his... I think his main character role as Bernard in Westworld, I've only seen season one and I'm only ever going to see season one to avoid <laughs> the rest of them, but he's great in that. And I'm really excited to see what he, what he does and where he goes as an actor. Uh, yeah. I also really like Catwoman, Zoe Kravitz. I think she's, she's perfect as the character and I like her playfully flirtatious dynamic with Batman. That's, I mean, yeah, I think that you can definitely tell that the writers really understood and appreciated the characters that they were writing, that they knew their history, they knew uh, they knew what they were, what they represented, and the way they acted, and I think that they did a great job in realizing all of that. Um, yeah, now I want to talk about the villain, um, who is the Riddler who is Paul Dano because there's, I have mixed feelings about him. I think that Paul Dano is a, a perfect choice for this updated version of the Riddler. Who's like the King incel of an incel army. He's creepy and weird, just like Paul Dano as a person. Uh, I'm just kidding. Paul Dano is probably a lovely guy, but he does play this kind of character quite a bit, like in There Will Be Blood or Prisoners. He plays similar characters. And I think that he does a great job here. Um, I like his... The, he's, he, he doesn't seem like outright insane. He just seems a bit off 
at times. And there are, and then there are other times where he really lets his freak flag fly that I think that I think Paul Dano does a good job of playing all those facets of the character. And I think also that this, that Riddler is a good choice for this updated version of the character who is a disaffected guy who feels like he's been wronged by society. But I don't think that he... I don't think that the whole disaffected side is established well enough. Like, I don't understand quite how he amassed such a following. I mean, there are implications here and there, mostly in the funeral scene, that there are a lot of people or a significant chunk of people out there who jive with Riddler's mission and the way he goes about it, but not enough. And it's the same thing. It's just like what we said with Batman, that I just wish that there was more work done to establish all of this, to make it make more sense, make it feel more coherent. Like it's still good. It just could have been better. And I also have no idea how he knows that Falcone was the rat. Like, is that ever explained? Did I just miss it? I'm confused. What happened? Yeah, I don't know. I guess the implication I got was that he was an accountant and in some accounting thing, he discovered that every, right, every, people were using the renewal fund to funnel money to elicit um, things, I guess he probably just guessed. I feel like it's not a super difficult, like, thing to figure out that Falcone is the rat. I mean, there's, it's Penguin or Falcone, and as soon as you eliminate Penguin, I feel like Falcone's not a terrible, you know, maybe he was just, he just had a really good hunch, and he's like, man, I hope this is right. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not know. very well, it's not very clear, which is a problem. And also, I think that this, and this all kind of ties into the pacing problems in that Riddler very much falls out of the story after a certain point, and we're focusing on Falcone. I don't think that that's the right move, because then we kind of have to reintroduce Riddler as the main, the central antagonist and we've kind of lost some of the momentum and the attachment that we had with him when we shifted focus to Falcone and it makes the last act when he is when we're suddenly trying to fight we're suddenly trying to figure out Riddler's ultimate plan it makes the last act feel kind of disjointed like they 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 needed to bring these two different plans into closer proximity with each other to make the whole thing feel more cohesive and like there's a more clear or a clearer through line of like objective and antagonist throughout the entire movie. Well, it's kind of, you know, if you contrast it with the dark Knight and how that one kind of has right multiple villains, there's kind of the mob people at the beginning and then Joker and then ultimately two face at the end. But really, the through line for all of them is Joker. Like, even though he spends sections, right, there's that entire opening part where he's in Hong Kong trying to get the accountant. Like, all of it is still in the same idea and is covering the same themes as Joker, the villain, represents. And I think there's parts where, yeah, he's off chasing Penguin or if he's off helping... Catwoman do a thing and Riddler's not there and there's less of a sense of cohesion in all of these disparate sort of like pieces and plot lines. Well, yeah, and it just, it's again, it's part of this whole thing that there's just some, some missed potential, some missed opportunities in this movie that could have given it that, that little shove that it needs to be truly great, truly fantastic. So yeah, uh, I feel I was going to talk about the pacing issues more in depth. I feel like we've kind of covered that. It's just, I mean, people just take a little bit longer to respond 
to other people's questions or declarations than they should. There are shots that just last a little bit too long that I'm like, okay, cut there, leave off the the last three seconds of that shot, and I think we're okay. But I do want to talk about the technical aspects of this movie because they're fantastic. They are masterful. Like, the cinematography is, it's really, this movie is a looker. And the lighting does a, the lighting really contributes to that, I feel. Uh, This movie has a fairly muted color palette, but I think that makes sense for the story that it's choosing to tell. Um, There's a lot of, the movie uses a lot of extreme close-ups or very close lenses to kind of blur the background and focus on one thing in the extreme foreground or to just kind of imply what's going on in the background. I'm thinking specifically of the shot when Riddler attacks initially the district attorney, Gil Coulson, in his Mm. car, and the shot is really close up on the steering wheel, and you can just see blurred out, you can see Riddler lock the bomb around Coulson's neck, and you see the lights go on. I think that's really good. That's really good. It's very atmospheric. It's very evocative. Um, It's good visual storytelling of, like, Riddler's clearly doing something, and it makes the audience think, like, oh, what is that? What's going on? what's, What's happening? The movie does that a lot, and I think it's a great trick, and it never really overuses it. But yeah, there's this movie is a looker. Yeah, I would just second that. The cinematography is so good. I I think one of the big things about good cinematography isn't just it looks good, but it finds interesting ways to show us things that we've probably seen before. You've probably seen a guy get attacked in a car before, I don't know if you've necessarily seen it shot exactly this way. I also think the chase scene where Batman's in the Batmobile chasing down Penguin, such an incredible scene. And so much of it is that it's filmed in a very interesting, compelling way that it's not cut to pieces like other racing, you know, stunts and chase scenes can be. And it's very clear what's happening and then it ends with just one of the dopest things of all time that, that he jumps through the explosion, he flips the car and then Batman walking in the upside down. It, I mean, that is an incredible shot. That's just a fantastic, fantastic shot. And the other thing I want to, I mean, it's, it's a travesty. This movie didn't end up getting more nominations in technical categories for the Oscars. And I'm not just saying that as like an idiot who knows nothing. Roger Deakins was asked at the end of the year, like what his favorite like movies that had come out this year was. And he specifically cited Greg Frazier as he's like, he did a fantastic job on the Batman and he should be getting way more credit than he got. So the expert, the godfather of cinematography (laughs) also feels this way. I also want to highlight This movie uses the volume, which is that ridiculous green, not green screen, but like special effect thing that the Mandalorian kind of popularized. So you can shoot it, you can shoot on a set, but then you don't have to green screen the background. You can have the actual background there. And it looks terrible in a lot of the Disney shows. And it looks terrible in a lot of like the CGI live action Disney movies it looks so good here and it's because the lighting and everyone else is making it look good. I mean, this movie looks fantastic because every part of the technical things is being done by an incredibly talented individual who knows how to make it look good, which is always, that's always going to be the difference between a show that looks terrible or a movie that looks terrible and a movie that looks good is there's just, like someone doesn't care or someone isn't good enough, I guess, to make it look as good. But this movie does not have that issue. It looks incredible. Yeah, I think that the lighting is very it the this movie is very well lit. And I think the issue I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about in terms of this movie using that trick. So it must have been great because I never even noticed it. But I do know what you're talking about in terms of the Mandalorian. There are so many shots that are just such obvious... I mean, it doesn't help that the rocks on Tatooine usually look like paper mache but also, 
the lighting is just weird. Like the lighting on the characters doesn't match the lighting in the background because that's computer lighting. This is lighting on a set and it looks very obvious. Um, and obviously we don't get that here. Um, I mean, you could you could even just contrast the Mandalorian to like Andor, which does a lot more on location shooting. And I love on location shooting, but it also in its sets, it actually takes the time to make sure that everything is lit properly. Um, yeah, I that's great. I did, I I just want to go back to the car chase. That is, oh my <laughs> gosh, that is a that is such a great scene. It's one of my favorite car chases I think I've ever seen. And this is something that Matt Reeves actually does a lot, where he will lock the camera onto something that's moving and use that as your perspective to, like, really get you in on the action. So he did that very often. He would, like, lock the camera to a wheel on the car so you could see what was behind it or what was directly in front of it. Uh, it was a little bit goofy when Batman was doing his base jump thing off the GCPD and it was locked onto his face. That was a little bit weird, but uh, yeah, in the car chase, it works so good to really give you a sense of speed and frenzied energy. Um, if you've seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, probably his most famous use of this trick is the turret shot when he locks the camera onto a rotating turret on top of an armored vehicle. And so it's just spinning around in this big fight scene, giving you, uh, it's great. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is such a great movie. Um, that is such a, yeah. <laughs> and yeah and matt reeves he's a great director i'm so excited to see where his career goes because he's made three bangers so far he also made one movie it's like i think it's called what is it called let the right one in something like that it's an american remake he made of, the left one really yeah it's an american remake of something i haven't seen it but yeah i matt reeves is a great director i'm really excited to see where he's going and also in the action like this fight scene in the club and in the rafters at the very end it's just well shot well choreographed it's not over the top it feels semi-realistic you can tell what's happening you know where everyone is it's, well done great job everyone who did that yeah i think the last thing i'll say because i think i've pretty much said everything is just how much i enjoy watching this movie i mean we've got our issues with some of the pacing but like there's no part in the movie that i'm like oh yeah we should have he should have cut this scene or she should have cut so there's no part of the movie where i'm not like enjoying in some at some level the experience of watching the movie and there's so many scenes i don't want to go through all of them but like there's so many sequences that are just great sequences. I love Batman escaping GCPD. I love the first time Catwoman goes into the club and Batman's like watching her thing through his ridiculous contact lens micro camera thingy. I love that. I mean, there's just so many great scenes and sequences in this movie. It's just, there's parts where I think the movie is maybe less than the sum of its parts where there's not as much cohesion as I would like, but there's no part of this film where I'm like, Oh gosh, this is so like emo or this is so ridiculous. I, it does such an amazing job. I'm, I really like this movie. I'm very, 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 very excited for the Batman two. I can't. Is the villain Mr. Freeze or Clayface, or am I just imagining both of those things? I mean, it has been confirmed. There were hints that it's going to be Two-Face. Um, Two-Face. And there are rumors that it's going to be, that Clayface will be in it. The movie did a promotional thing where you could actually go to elradaelada.com and there were riddles that you could solve. And the solutions would lead you to, like, the first appearances of different comic book characters. And one of the last riddles, the solution was the first appearance of Two-Face. So I think mm. that's the implication. But there have been rumors that, it's, that Clayface will be in it. Yes. I love I, – I really want Clayface to show up as a Batman villain. I think he's underutilized. I think he's great. I'm excited. I'm very excited for the Batman, too, regardless of the villain. Well, yeah, I think I don't really have uh, anything else to say. So are we ready to get some ratings up in this his house? 
Yeah, absolutely. I can go first since you left the door open for me to go first. And I'm just going to I'm just going to pop out here. It's going to be like an 8.4 out of 10. I think I've kind of talked it up. There's some pacing issues. It is a three hour long movie. So it's, you know, there's not a lot of three hour long movies that I'm just like, dude, every moment of this is perfect. And the entire movie is perfect. In fact, I can't think of any off the top of my head besides maybe Return of the King. But this movie is so good. It has such a fantastic understanding of Batman and the characters. I think for every classic kind of Batman combo, there's a scene in this movie that's one of the best scene. Like there's a great Batman and Alfred scene where Alfred's in the hospital. There's a great Batman and Catwoman scene when she leaves. There's a great Batman and Gordon scene every time they're on screen together. There's a great Batman and Penguin scene every time they're on screen together. I mean, there's just so many great scenes in this movie. So many great sequences. So well made. I'm a big fan. I've actually gotten more excited about it as I've talked about it in this episode. Uh, yeah, I've I've kind of done the same thing. Um, there are, yeah, there are just pacing issues and lost, missed opportunities, wasted potential here that keep it from, it's just, it's so close, man. It's so close to being incredible, but it's it's like knocking at the door of incredible. It just needs to figure out a way to pick the lock and make its way in. That's a clumsy metaphor, but whatever. Um, yeah, there's so much I love about this movie. I think you put it really well there that, um, well, I'm going to rephrase it, but that there, you're always like looking forward to the next scene. You're like, oh man, I can't wait to see... Batman and Catwoman when they first meet. And then you're like, oh man, I can't wait to see the, the scene with uh, the scene with Gordon and Batman, every one of them. I can't wait to see <laughs> the car chase scene, the, the, all that stuff. Um, the music is fantastic. Michael Giacchino is doing a great job. Um, yeah, this is a really good movie. It's so close to true mastery. I'm very excited for the sequel. I think that Matt Reeves, there's every chance that he's going to pull it out and make make something that is truly fantastic. Um, so I'm going to give it like a B plus. Just mm. you know, it's just right on the threshold of the upper echelons. But yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get into recommendations. I'm going to go first and just slam the door in your face, Nathan. Uh, I am going to recommend a movie that I'm not going to have to talk about very much because we've actually already talked about it. And that movie is Seven Then, um, the <laughs> movie by David Fincher. It's a very gritty, slick detective story. You can see our or listen to our review of it to get the lowdown. But I'm choosing it because I feel like Seven is just the Batman leveled up. Like the scene in the Batman where they're in Riddler's hideout and they're reading his journals. If that's not an homage to C7, then then it's a complete ripoff of C7, then because there it's like a one to one scene from Seven. Um, yeah, Seven's a great movie. Just listen to our episode on it, and you'll know why. But it is, it's uh, it's got a very strong, strongly moralistic, not moralistic, that's the wrong word, but a very idealistic main character. It's got a villain who's a lot better than uh the riddler or who's integrated more artfully and uh it's got that great um thorough detective work that this movie has of just going over scenes reviewing evidence tracking down leads the procedural things that draws people to detective stories or draws a lot of people to detective stories yeah for my thoughts, you can also listen to the episode. I'm going to go in a similar vein. I think Seven is the movie that got a lot of comparisons to this one, especially when the first trailer was unveiled and, he, you know, he's getting letters from the guy. Everyone was like, whoa, it's just like Seven. I think, having watched it twice now, I think it's more similar to David Fincher's other serial killer procedural sort of movie, and that is Zodiac, which has an incredibly stacked cast. It follows uh, some guy who I think wrote a book. He's like an author. He's not really a detective. It's mostly about the newspaper people, I think. But it covers the iconic Zodiac killer 
as he's terrorizing California and it follows Jake Gyllenhaal as kind of this journalist who's trying to piece together who this guy is. It's very good. It's much more about, I think, kind of the mentality of the people who are pursuing the Zodiac Killer than it really is about the Zodiac Killer himself. But it's so fantastic. I mean, Fincher brings his trademark, you know, smooth, slick cinematography to all of the scenes. It's a very uh, kind of uh, daring watch. There's some fairly exciting graphic sort of scenes of the Zodiac. And there's one scene in particular that has one of the most innocuous, but if you've watched the movie, just terrifying lines maybe ever it is horrifying but it's very good i think it has a similar sentiment as this movie and it also has a guy sending letters to the police that are ciphers that people need to figure out in order to get one step ahead so it's just like this movie but zodiac is my recommendation very good movie incredibly good cast you'd be surprised if you watched it who all's in it that you're like whoa i know him from other stuff it's a good movie. I agree. Zodiac is a great movie. Fincher is bringing it in that one just like he usually does. Um, ugh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, that movie is scary. Uh, I watched it. Well, the first time I watched it was on my computer in my room alone in the middle of the night. And there's a scene where Zodiac uh, calls into a radio show or a, a TV show and it scared the bejesus out of me. It's, and it's, it's like a well-lit scene in the middle of the day with people all around. But I was still like, oh, man. They're, just the way that it, that it unfolds, I was really scared. I was really scared. Yeah. I yeah, think it's, it's, a, it's a surprisingly scary movie. Like, I would honestly describe it almost as a horror movie or it has horror-adjacent sequences. Because it is – it has – it gives you such a pervasive sense of doom and gloom of like, I'm going to walk outside, go a block and some random Zodiac person is going to show up and murder me. It, it occupies the same space between pure police procedural and horror movie that I think Silence of the Lambs does. Um, oh yeah. That's another good recommendation for this movie. I think. Sure. But yeah, uh, life is hard and full of disappointments. I think we all Good know job. that. Um, but I'll go. continue to remind us. Yeah, this was uh, good stuff. Good stuff, Maynard. Yeah, thank goodness we finally got it in. Apologies again if you're listening to this in the present day. This was delayed because of some technical issues on my end that it was not Elliot's fault at all. Last time we were delayed, I think it was Elliot's fault. If you're listening to this in the future, then you don't. you can ignore all of this. But the bright side for you, present day listener, is you'll get double the episodes. We'll release this episode as soon as it's edited and ready to come out. And we will be having another episode this Friday for sure. Let me just say that now. So we, we have to get it out by Friday. But we hope you have a great week in the interim. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again on Friday for sure.